be free from the burden of sin. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's God. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let's turn around, shake hands, and fellowship one with another. Welcome our visitors.
It's glad there's power in the blood. Say amen. amen. Praise the Lord. I'm glad you're here tonight. Good to have those that are visiting. We have Pastor Thomas, I believe it is, and his wife from Loganville, Georgia. Good to have you with us tonight. Appreciate you stopping over and being with us. And others that are here, we're glad that you're here. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Praise the Lord. Damon, lead us in prayer, if you would, please. Yes. Praise the Lord. Yes, yes. Touch us. Oh, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes. Praise His name. Yes. Amen. Let's continue to sing and worship. Are you washed in the blood? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace? Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering. And again, I remind you that everything you give on Wednesday night goes to support the Bible conference. And we're about seven weeks away from that. And so let me encourage you over the next few weeks to give just a little bit extra. You've given good all through the year. Um, but uh, just maybe drop in a little bit extra each week now for the next several weeks. What you give on Wednesday night enables us to provide lodging for the many, many guests that come in. But uh, we're about seven weeks away. How many of you are excited about the things that are going on around here? Amen? All we need now is about two and a half million dollars. Can I get an amen right there? That's it. We get that, then everything's on the way.
but we are excited about it. Just looking forward to everything the Lord is doing. All even this week, I have seen God moving here and working there, and just it's it's amazing how the Lord is moving and just bringing things together. But we'll be doing a lot of things now over the next couple of years as we get ready. In fact, uh, deacons are meeting tomorrow night uh, with a company coming out of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, church design and different things like that. So we'll be meeting them tomorrow night to begin the process, coming up with an ideal, determining what we need, how we need it, that kind of thing. But uh, over the next couple of years, going to be exciting things. And uh, we have certain goals. We'll be telling you more about them. Now, one of the things we're going to be doing now, Chester Joash has always been an important Sunday in our church every year. But we're going to be designating now because of the... Uh, direction we're going, the things that we're doing. Our fifth Sundays are going to be designated uh, to our uh, new building project and different project and different things like that. So we got one coming up, not this Sunday, but the next Sunday. And so uh, we'll be uh, encouraging everybody to double your tithe on these fifth Sundays. And our goal is to raise about a half a million dollars before we ever get started. So we've got a long way to go, but uh, we're going to get there. So I want you to start praying about it now and the fifth Sundays and and all this extra money you get, and RJ, don't let Bobby go out and spend so much. Save it and put it in the offering for the Lord and, and things like that. Say amen. RJ said they'd be happy if I could just get her home. Amen. But uh, let's really start praying about these things. And again, I am excited about what the Lord is doing. Amen. And we thank the Lord for it. So remember all these things. All of you in the auditorium class that are taking food, uh, for Edith Brooks, as, as many of you know, her sister passed away. The funeral is tomorrow. Uh, food needs to be taken to her sisters at 1529 Keeble Street in East Ridge tomorrow after 5 o'clock. I'll leave this note down here on the communion table so you can get that address again. 1529 Keeble Street in East Ridge tomorrow after 5. Let's pray. Father, bless the offering now. Thank you for the purpose for which it is given. I pray you'll meet the need. We thank you for how you've blessed this year and that which the folks have given. Now, Father, as we draw near the conference, we pray, one, that you would bless it and the hand of God would be upon it, and then, two, that you'd provide every need that we have. Thank you again for all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.
thankful for the Lord's mercy tonight and thankful that we have the privilege to get up and sing that we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and that it's signed and sealed forever. Pray that you listen to the words of these songs called The Word is Mercy. Just
Praise the Lord. Let's take our Bible and turn to Exodus 25, and we'll talk about that mercy as we continue. And tonight, we conclude our study of the tabernacle. We've spent several weeks looking at the tabernacle tonight. We come to our final study, and then, Lord willing, next Wednesday night, we'll be going to the book of Titus. But I want you to stand as we honor the reading of His Word Exodus 25, let's begin reading in verse 17. We'll read down through verse 22. And tonight we're going to think about the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Exodus 25, verse 17. The scripture said, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark shalt thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Thank you. you. May be seated. Let's pray. And then tonight, as I said, we conclude our study of the tabernacle by looking at the mercy seat. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight in Jesus' name, we thank you for your mercy. Father, we're so thankful that we do not get what we deserve. We're very much aware tonight, Lord, that if we got what we deserve, we'd be in hell or at least be on our way to hell. But we didn't get what we deserve. We found mercy and we received mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for all that mercy means to us tonight as a believer. Now, Father, as we come to our final study of the tabernacle, I ask you, Lord, that you might help us tonight to glean things that will help us, things that will make us appreciate who we are and what we have in the Lord Jesus and what you've done for us. Make the Lord Jesus Christ real to our hearts, endear him to our hearts, and we'll thank you and praise you for it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask these things. Amen. As I said tonight, we come to our final study of the tabernacle. And I trust that it's been an interesting time for you, that it's been an interesting study for you, and most of all, I hope that it's helped you to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ more. For everything about the tabernacle, in some way or the other, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, symbolize the Lord Jesus Christ, and had something to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. So more than just learning a few things about a building in the desert, I hope tonight that you have been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been helped to see Him in a greater way. During our weeks we have spent in the tabernacle, we began by looking at the tabernacle as a whole. And then we began to look at the outer court. You have a picture of the tabernacle on the front of your bulletin. And that white fence there 
Anyth everything inside the white fence is what we call the outer court. And we began by considering the outer court and the entrance that you have on the east end going into the outer court. Only one entrance, not two, not three, not four, but only one. Reminding us there are not many ways to heaven. There's one way, and that's through God's Son, the Lord Jesus. Once we looked at the outer court in the one entrance, then we walked inside the entrance of the outer court, and we looked at the first thing that would have caught our attention if we had visited the tabernacle. And when you walk in the entrance, there directly in front of you would have stood a large brazen altar. We looked at that altar and we reminded ourselves at the very beginning of our getting to God and the very beginning of going to God and getting in the presence of God begins at the cross. We looked at the brazen altar. Then we moved past the brazen altar to the next item, which would have been the brazen laver. And we reminded ourselves that the Christian life begins at the cross, but then there is the matter of learning to deal with sin in our life as a believer. It's a time, place of cleansing. For the priest, for the believer, there is the daily cleansing of our life, abiding in him, as John said, living an unbroken fellowship. Then we moved to the tabernacle itself. And we began to look at the tabernacle by considering what the Bible distinguishes as the curtains and the coverings. We looked at the coverings, which would, there are four, actually four coverings or four materials that comprise the roof of the tabernacle itself. The first two on the inside looking up, it's what the Bible calls coverings or curtains. And then the two that's laid on top of them, the Bible distinguishes them by calling them coverings. So we looked at the two curtains and we looked at the two coverings. Then we began to move inside the tabernacle itself. You remember the tabernacle is divided into two rooms. The first room is what we call the holy place. Then behind the veil in the second room is the most holy place or the holies of holies. As we moved into the first room, we walked inside and we began to look at three different items or articles that you would have found inside the holy place of the first room. To your left, you would have saw a golden candlestick. To your right, you would have saw a table of showbread. And then directly in front of you, sitting next to the veil, would have been an altar of incense. We spent one week looking at the golden candlestick. We spent another week looking at the table of showbread. And then we spent another week looking at the altar of incense. All of these reminding us of some truth about the Lord Jesus and our getting to God through Him. Then last week we began to move behind the veil and go into the most holy place or the holies of holies as it is sometimes called. And when you walk inside, there would have been two things you would have saw or would have seen, I should say. And when you saw those two things, you would have thought them to be one thing. The picture we have on the screen, I believe it is now, and the picture that you have inside your bulletin, that appears to be one item. But actually it is two items. The first item that we, what, we, the first thing we looked at, we saw last Wednesday night, would have been the Ark of the Covenant. That would be the bottom part of the article that you see, that part that has the rings and the staves on the side and the little gold crown on the top. That would have been the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box, a chest made of shittim wood overlaid with pure gold, and we saw there were four items that were placed on the inside of the Ark. The second part of it is what we call the mercy seat. And that's what we want to look at tonight in our final study of the tabernacle. When you talk about the mercy seat, you're actually talking about the top or the lid to the ark. I describe the ark as being a chest. 
Hey, just a box about two and a half feet wide, about two foot, about, a, about three, two and a half, two feet, nine inches wide, and uh, about a foot and something, uh, about two feet, nine inches wide, about a foot and something wide, long and wide. I'll get it right here in a minute. Say amen right there. And, but it was a box, and down on the inside we put those articles. The lid to it is what we would call the mercy seat. Now, when you talk about the mercy seat, you're talking about a slab of solid gold that fit exactly inside the crown on the ark. At each end, as you can see in the picture, were two cherubims. They were facing each other and looking down at the ark, and their wings were raised and extended over the ark. Well, that's just a word or two by way of introduction. Let's look at the Scripture tonight, looking, first of all, and thinking about the preparation of the mercy seat or the construction of the mercy seat, or the building of the mercy seat. Go back to the scripture that we read a moment ago, and let's work our way through it. Verse 17, the Bible said, If thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. In verse 17, the first thing that we are told is that the mercy seat was made of pure gold. The candlestick was made of pure gold. A couple other items were made of pure gold. The mercy seat, the slab, was made of pure gold. Verse 17 gives us the measurements. It was 3 feet 9 inches in length and 2 feet 3 inches in width. That's what I was trying to say a while ago. The ark was the same dimensions. So we oftentimes, when we think about the ark of the covenant, we think about this huge thing, but it really wasn't that big. You're talking about something that was 3 feet nine inches in length, and about two feet, three inches in width. So you're talking about just a very small item there, and the priest would carry that upon their shoulders. But the mercy seat, the lid, measured the same as the ark and fit right down into the crown. Verse 18, the Bible said, And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, a beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. Verse 18 tells us, that on each end of the mercy seat were two cherubims that were made of gold. You see the phrase there, beaten work? Beaten work speaks of that which has been molded or shaped by a craftsman. You remember one of our early studies we saw that God gave certain people certain skills to make some of these things? We thought about that when we looked at the golden candlestick and what a work of precision it was. In fact, it was beyond human capability, one solid piece, but yet it was a divine ability. It was made by divine ability, or God gave the ability to do it. And the same thing is true about the uh, mercy seat. It was beaten work. That is, it was molded and shaped by craftsmen. Verse 19, And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Now notice this next statement. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. Again in verse 19 we are told that a cherubim was found on each end. But the important statement in verse 19 is that these cherubims were not molded and shaped and then attached to this slab of gold that we call the mercy seat. But verse 19 tells us that the whole thing was of one piece. The cherubims and the mercy seat were of one beaten piece. You see that phrase there in verse 19? Even of the mercy seat. So when you're looking at that lid there on top of the ark, 
And those two angels there, those angels were not shaped and then attached to the gold. You took gold and this one whole piece was shaped out of the same or out of one solid piece there. So you don't have an attachment. You have ain't these two cherubims in that slab all of one piece of gold. Verse 20, the Bible tells us, And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Verse 20 tells us that the wings of the cherubim stretch toward each other, covering the length of the mercy seat. You see that in your picture. Verse 20 also tells us that the two cherubims were turned in the direction of one another. They were facing one another. And verse 20 also tells us that the faces of the cherubim, their wings stretched toward one another and came almost to a place where they touched, covering the entire mercy seat, the entire ark. They were facing one another, but yet verse 20 tells us their faces were looking down. Here are these two cherubims, their wings stretching out, almost touching one another, facing one another, but yet looking down up on the mercy seat itself, gazing down upon the lid. Verse 21, the Bible said, If thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Verse 21 tells us that the mercy seat was placed upon or in the ark. That is, it was simply set down in that crown. That crown become like uh, something that kept the mercy seat from sliding off. So it sat right down in that crown, forming a lid to the ark. Verse 21 also makes mention of the items that were on the inside. We looked at that. The rod of Aaron that budded, the pot of manna, the tables of stone, and the tables of the covenant as we looked at last week. But anyway, it formed a lid and was put up on the ark. So when you look at it, if you looked at it, if you walked on the inside, it looked like one piece. But it was really two pieces, the bottom part being the ark and the top part being the mercy seat. Verse 22 tells us, God said, And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Verse 22 simply tells us that it was at the mercy seat that God met man. And it was at the mercy seat that man met God. I mentioned last week we talked about the ark. If you'd been out there in the daytime, there would have been this huge cloud that would have covered the camp of Israel. But it would funnel its way down to that second room in the tabernacle, the most holy place, and it would channel its way down right between those cherubims. That was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's more than just a cloud, more than a pillar of fire. It was what we call the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God. There's where God met with man. God made the move toward man. There's where man met with God. God said, there I will commune with thee. That's the preparation of the ark or the mercy seat. But the second thing, and here's what you get. Not only the preparation of the mercy seat, but the propitiation at the mercy seat. Now that's what the mercy seat is all about. Here is the significance of the mercy seat. I said last week that everything else in the tabernacle had relation to the ark and to the mercy seat. Everything out of the outer court, 
Everything about the design of it, everything that it symbolized, all of it pointed in the direction of the ark and the mercy seat because of the significance of the mercy seat. You see, there was a mercy seat God gave Moses the commandments to make. But there was a reason for the mercy seat. He said, there I will commune with thee. There I'm going to meet thee. It was a place of propitiation. As you look at the mercy seat in both the Old and the New Testament, you find that it was a place of propitiation. For example, Romans 3 and verse 25. I put the text on the screen. You write the reference down in your bulletin. Notice and listen carefully what Paul said. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now notice carefully what Paul said. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. I underscore the word propitiation in your Bible or there on your bulletin. The word propitiation literally means mercy seat. Paul said in Romans 3.25 that God has set forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be our mercy seat through faith in His blood. To be our mercy seat to declare His righteousness. Christ is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. Now you look at the word propitiation. As I said, the word propitiation simply means mercy seat. And Paul said Jesus is our mercy Mercy seat. John had the same thought in mind in 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10. Write it down. Here, look at it on the screen. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son, notice, to be the propitiation for our sins. You see the word propitiation there? Same as Romans 3.25. To be our mercy seat for our sins. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the mercy seat? Because of what happened at the mercy seat, because of what occurred at the mercy seat, the Jews could find forgiveness and reconciliation. If what had happened at the mercy seat had not happened, there would not have been a single Jew that would have ever been forgiven or reconciled unto a holy God. And because Jesus Christ is our mercy seat, because of what Jesus has done is our mercy seat, we also find forgiveness and we also find reconciliation. And if Christ be not our propitiation, and if He be not our mercy seat, then friend, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we would have all died in our sins and went to hell. So what are you talking about? Well, to help you to understand the place and the importance of the mercy seat, let me explain to you what happened at the mercy seat. Throughout our course, through the course of our study of the tabernacle, I've talked about the high priest. I've talked about the day of atonement. I've talked about the most holy place. Again, your picture there, you see the outer court in a tent. On the back end of it there in your picture, that tent is what we actually call the tabernacle. There's a veil there that divided that into two rooms. The first room was 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 30 feet long. And then there was this beautiful veil that divided it. Behind the veil, you went into a room that was 15 feet wide, 15 foot high, and 15 foot long. That was the most holy place. Now every day, twice a day, priests went into that first room. Every morning, every evening. They went in there and, made, and, and, and took care of the candlesticks and the table of showbread and the incense. They did it every morning and they did it every, every afternoon. They did that every day of the year. But the second room in the most holy place, 
That room was only entered once a year. Not every day, but once a year. And even then, it was not entered by the priest. And you see, the people could come in the outer court, but they couldn't go into the holy place. The priest could go in the holy place. But even then, only the high priest could go in the most holy place. And only one man, the high priest, only once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was an annual feast for Israel. It was the Day of Atonement. It was the day that they received an atonement for their sins. It was a very solemn event, as you can imagine. And a very solemn event for the people, a very solemn event for the high priest. The high priest, conscious of his holy task, the high priest carried out each prescribed step of his ministry in a spirit of deep precision. Everything was done precisely the way it had been commanded by God. Every little detail. Not one detail was ignored. Not one detail was taken lightly. For one thing, his very life depended upon every detail being precisely carried out by God and the atonement of the nation depended upon him carrying it out precisely had been ordered by God. Also, I was aware of the tremendous significance of the day. On the day of atonement, the children of Israel, the Israelites, the tribes, would encircle the tabernacle and there would be people as far as the eye could see circling that tabernacle. You see the picture there? You see the tents and the camps and the tribes camped around it? Well, on the day of atonement, on that one end where the entrance is, everybody, all the Jews would have crowded and got as close to that entrance as they could. This was the day of atonement. This was the day a sacrifice was going to be offered and whether or not God would atone for their sins or forgive them for their sins. So all the Jews would have gathered there that day. Not only was it a solemn day for the high priest, but a very solemn day for the children of Israel. And I can imagine in my mind, there wasn't a lot of joking going on that day. There wasn't a lot of talking going on that day. Every, I can see every dad standing there with his wife and little children standing there in a holy hush. Nobody's saying a word. You could almost hear their hearts beating. This is the day that's going to determine heaven and hell for them. This is the day that's going to make the difference whether or not they are right with God. And so they stand outside that tent or that gate there waiting for several things to happen. On the inside was the priest. The first thing the high priest would do, and again the people are outside, the high priest on the inside at the altar. He would offer a bullock as a sin offering for himself and for his house. He first had to take care of his own sins before he could ever represent the nation before God. So the high priest would offer a bullock as a sin offering for himself and his house. The second thing that he would do is he'd take a censer full of burning coals from off the brazing altar. Now, big altar is, the coals are burning there, the fire never went out. Fire had been ignited by God, strict instructions, never let the fire go out. He would take coals off of that altar and put them into a bowl. And then he would put two handfuls of sweet incense into a golden bowl. And with these two bowls, he would enter into the holies of holies. He would go behind that veil where only one man could go on once a year. And he would go on the inside behind that veil where the ark and the mercy seat was. And he would pour the incense out of that golden bowl into those burning coals. And the incense would begin to burn. 
And it would fill the room with smoke as it rose up toward God. And it symbolized the prayers of all the people beseeching God for the atonement of their sin. Then he would come back out of the holy place, most holy. Go through the first room, the holy place, and then he would return to the brazen altar. And he would take another basin full of the bullock's blood that had just been slain. And then he would turn and go back inside the holies of holies again the second time. This time when he walked behind that veil in that room exclusively that he had the right to go into once a year, he would take the blood from that bullock that had been slain on his behalf and he would take that blood and a piece of hyssop and he would sprinkle that blood seven times upon the mercy seat between those cherubims. The number seven was a number of completion. Once he had sprinkled that blood seven times upon that golden lid, that mercy seat, then he would exit the holies of holies, go back behind the veil, through the most holy place, and then he would go back outside again. When he came out the second time, the high priest would choose two goats, two goats of equal color, equal size, an equal value from the congregation of the children of Israel. They had to be practically identical. The two goats would be chosen and then the high priest would cast lots for which one of these two goats was going to die. So he'd cast lots and one goat would be condemned to die. The other had another reason. Once the lots were cast and the goat was chosen to be slain, then that goat would be offered as a sacrifice. He had offered a bullock for himself. Now he's offering a second sacrifice. And he offers that goat to be slain as a sacrifice. Its blood would be put in a basin. Much like the way that he did with the bullock's blood, he would take the blood of the goat, put it in a basin, once again go through the, past the veil into the holy place, and as before, take a little piece of hyssop and seven times... He would sprinkle the blood of that goat upon the mercy seat. But he did something different when he came out. As he came out of the holy place, he would stop at the altar of incense right there at the veil. And he would take the blood out of that, the blood of that goat and he would sprinkle the blood upon the horns of the altar of incense. He went in, sprinkled the mercy seat seven times. As he came out, he would stop at the altar of incense and little horns on the corner, you remember our study of it, he would sprinkle them seven times to take care of the contamination of sin by the children of Israel. And once he had sprinkled the horns of the altar of incense seven times, then he would go back to the brazen altar. And he would mix the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat in one basin, and then he would dip his finger in the basin of blood, and he would sprinkle the horns of the altar of the brazen altar, the big altar outside. There's the blood of the bullock, there's the blood of the goat. He'd put them all, the blood in both in one basin and then he would come to this corner and he would sprinkle, put his own hands and he would sprinkle that horn, sprinkle that horn, sprinkle that horn and then he would sprinkle that horn. If he was living at that time, it signified God had accepted the sacrifice. This is what he would do outside. There's a huge crowd waiting. Has God accepted the sacrifice? Because if he, the, if, you see, the high priest was a man. 
And a man cannot enter into the presence of God. And if he had dared walked into that holies of holies without God's prescription, he would have died on the spot. Outside, people don't know what's going on. Has God accepted the sacrifice? And when he had sprinkled that blood upon the horns of that brazen altar with his own hands, then he would walk to the gate and he would part the curtains and raise his hands to say, God has accepted the sacrifice. Our sins have been atoned for. And then immediately, the high priest would turn and walk back on the inside and every heart would start slowing down. We, the atonement, sacrifice has been made. I can imagine them cheering and celebrating on back on the inside. When he walked back on the inside, he went to the second goat. His hand is bloody. From where he put his hand in the basin of the blood of the bullock and the goat, and he sprinkled the altar. Here's the blood on his hands. And he walks over to that second goat. The first one had died, but the second one still living. And he'd take that bloody hand and put it upon the head of that second goat. And by putting that bloody hand upon the head of that second goat, he is saying, I am now placing all of the sin, my sins and the sins of the nation of Israel upon this goat. And then someone would take that goat and carry way out in the wilderness somewhere. So far away that it could never find its way back. And what it symbolized was one died. The innocent one died for the guilty. But in so doing... We found atonement for our sins and God removed our sins and carried them far away, never to be remembered again. In fact, that second goat was called a scapegoat. You know what scapegoat literally means? Scapegoat, the Hebrew word literally means entire removal. In other words, he took that goat out there and left it. And he carried their sins away as we say, gone, gone, my sins are gone. That's what it happened on the Day of Atonement. That's what the mercy seat was all about. That's where God met man. That's where man met God. And they met on the basis of the blood. Man comes to God on the basis of the blood. God deals with man on the basis of the blood. And met at the mercy seat. Now you listen to me tonight. The Lord Jesus Christ is my mercy seat. The Lord Jesus Christ is my propitiation. He was the sacrifice that died for my sins. He was the high priest that took his blood into heaven's holy of holies to make atonement for my sin. In him my sins are removed. I don't know about you, but I bless the day when the Holy Ghost lifted his hands to tell me my sins were gone. Can I get an amen right there? You ask me while I'm happy, then I'll just tell you why. It's because my sins are gone. Praise be to his name. But the mercy seat, what is the significance of the mercy seat? For one thing, to us today, for one thing, it tells us that you can't get to God apart from the blood. There is no remission without the shedding of the blood. You listen to me tonight. You listen to me carefully. There's not a one of you going to heaven because you're good. Not a one of you going to heaven because you've never drunk a drop in your life or never stole a thing in your life. I don't care how good you are, it's your very best, you die in your sins and go to hell. The only way you can get to God is somebody that was not guilty had to die in your place and shed his blood. The only way you'll get to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the mercy seat reminds us there's no getting to God. There is no atonement apart from the blood. 
There's something else. I mentioned those cherubims on both ends and their wings come together. They are poised upon their... You remember one of our studies, we looked at the cherubims. We found them on the veil, the, uh, the embroidered work of the cherubims on the veil. And we saw that cherubims in the Bible are... They represent divine justice. You follow cherubims through the Bible. They appear to be messengers sent by God to carry out His divine justice. You remember the first time you find cherubims in the Bible? There's, there's a law and interpreting the Bible. It's called the law of first mention. If you want to find out what something means in the Bible, go the first time, take a word. You want to find out what it basically means throughout all the Bible, go the first time in the Bible. You find that word, find out what it means there. It'll have that basic meaning throughout all the Bible. You want to find something in the Bible like a cherubim? Go the first time in the Bible you find a cherubim. And the first time you find a cherubim, you find two cherubims barring Adam and Eve from the garden. They had been sent by God to administer divine justice. Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden because of sin. And the cherubims were standing there with flaming swords not to let them back in. Man could not come back in on their own. And so the cherubims were God's instruments of divine justice. And they seem to be that all through the Bible. But when you find them positioned the way they are on the ark, look at the picture on your bulletin. They're, they're positioned that way because they are positioned as if they are poised to strike. Now remember, they've been sent by God to deliver divine justice. And their wings are outstretched over the ark, over the mercy seat, and they're poised as if they're about to strike, as if they're about to minister justice. But something keeps them from striking or administering that justice. It's the blood down there between them. It's the blood on the mercy seat. Are you listening to me? Here's one little old hillbilly. If he had what he deserved, God should have thrown me in hell my back broke. But he didn't do it, and I'm going to tell you why. Not because I'm a Baptist preacher, not because I try to live for God, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, God's dear Son. That's the only reason you're not going to hell. It's the only reason God don't throw you in the hell by the top of your head. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Exodus 12, 13, he said, and the children of Israel on the Passover night, when I see the blood, I will pass over thee. What spared the homes that night? It was the blood. One more thing about the mercy seat. I said solid gold. You remember all through our studies, we have saw that gold and silver and every color in there is symbolic of something. We have said that the gold was symbolic of the deity of Christ. The ark itself was made of wood overlaid with gold. Wood, we have seen all through the Bible, is symbolic of the humanity of Christ. Gold being symbolic of the deity of Christ. Wood overlaid with gold is symbolic of the God-man. He was God, he was man, he was the God-man. But the mercy seat, where God meets with man, and where man meets with God, it's solid gold. There's no wood in it. It's like God is saying, I want you to understand, salvation has nothing to do with you. Salvation is my doing. Salvation is my work. You say, we often say, I found him. I understand what you mean, but the, body, the truth of the matter is, you didn't find him, he found you. I don't know about you, but I was going my own headstrong way. I had no thought of God. I cared not about God. I cared not about the things of God. But somebody got a hold of me. And somebody came looking for me. And somebody got a hold of my heart. And somebody brought me to the Lamb of God. And brought me to somebody that could save me. It was God's work. Salvation is not what I do. It's what Jesus Christ has done. 
It is a total work of God. That's why, bless his name, I am glad to be saved. That's why, I don't know about, you can say a lot knots on the log if you want to, but I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to raise my voice and lift my hands and act like a novice because blessed be God, I don't deserve one thing that I have, but God in His grace and God in His mercy has saved me through the shedding of blood. I am God's child. I have been forgiven. I have been reconciled. I don't have to worry about going to hell. I'm going to heaven not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. If that's not enough to get excited about, there's no hope for you. Can I get an amen right there? Mercy seat, Jesus Christ is my mercy seat. Are you glad? Amen. Look at your prayer sheet inside your bulletin. Let's remember our missionary of the week, our church of the week, and then some special ones we'll mention in just a moment. Our missionary of the week is Brother Ralph Burchell, serving in Japan with Baptist International Missions. We want to remember the Burchell family and be lifting them up in prayer. Our Church of the Week is Whitfield Baptist Tabernacle in Dalton, Georgia, Brother Wayne Cofield. They're having a meeting coming up. What week is it? Is it first of August, second week in August, or something? It's coming up somewhere in August. Oh, no, they're having a meeting all through the month. That's what it is. Having different ones, Brother Larry Brown, others are going to be there. But we want to begin lifting them up, praying that God will bless them. And then our hospital list, we've got several there. And of course, at the bottom, our, our Edith Brooks, there's a note there about her sister that passed away. Funerals tomorrow at 2 o'clock at Mars Hills Baptist Church. And then many of you have already heard that Mrs. Hubbard, she went home to be with the Lord this afternoon. Don't know any of the details yet. I think she'll be at Wilson and Wilson's funeral home. But we want to remember Mamie and all the family. Uh, Miss Hubbard, she'll always be special to us. Uh, she was a, a unique person, great person. We're going to miss Miss Hubbard. I saw her about 20 minutes, 30 minutes before she went home to be with the Lord. And I, I said to her, Miss Hubbard, if you're going home in a little while, I just want you to know we're going to miss you around here. But we love you, and we do. But let's remember the family, be praying for them, and pray the Lord will touch them. Let's pray now that God will continue to bless all that's going on. Our, our plans, our goals, and all these things. It takes the Lord to do it, and He'll have to do it. All of you that will, let's come and just gather around the altar. Get on your knees tonight. And say, dear God, thank you that Jesus Christ is my mercy seat. He is my propitiation. In Him I am declared righteous. In Him I find forgiveness of my sins. Thank Him for it. And as we do so, let's remember our missionary of the week and our church of the week and for these special requests tonight. Also, family of Raymond Allen that passed away uh, on Tuesday. And Margaret Allen, Allen's former hus husband Let's remember this family be praying for them as well. Gary, I want you to come up here. Gary, where are you at? And uh, come up here. I want you to lead this prayer. We're enjoying having you and Michelle here, enjoying the time we're gonna, we have you. I want you to pray for us tonight. Lead us in prayer as we pray for our missionary of the week, the church of the week. Bless you, Gary. Giving this message tonight to remind us of what we have in Jesus. Thank you that he is our mercy seat. And thank you that we're saved only by the blood of Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here tonight that's without Christ, that they will come to him as their only hope for salvation. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that you're a prayer hearing, prayer answering God. And Lord, that we can come to the Lord. We can come to the throne of grace and find mercy to help us in our time of need. And Lord, we do come to that throne tonight and 
lift up these in prayer that need our help and Lord need our prayers. We pray for the Burchell family, Lord, as they serve the Lord in Japan. God, we thank you for godly missionaries that love you and Lord are willing to go anywhere you send them and carry this good news of the gospel to those that are lost. And we pray that you will bless this family, encourage them tonight, meet their needs, we pray. And Father, we pray, Lord, for the Whitfield Baptist Tabernacle. We thank you for this good church and pastor. We pray that you will bless it. Lord, we thank you for every church that lifts up the name of the Lord Jesus. But we pray for this church tonight. May you encourage their people. Lord, may you give them fruit for their labor. We pray that you will bring revival to their hearts. And we pray that you will bless these special meetings that they're having in the month of August. And Lord, that you will use them to stir up the people of God. And I pray tonight that you will bless these on the prayer list, all those in the hospital. Lord, I pray that your presence will be so real with them and that you will encourage them. But Lord, we're glad that you're Jehovah Rapha, the God that healeth. And we call on your name tonight to touch these ones and lift them up, Lord, out of this sick bed of affliction. And God, meet their every need. Lord, we pray tonight for Edith in the death of her sister. And we know, Lord, that this family is definitely touched and bereaved in this situation. This other dear lady that's gone home to be with the Lord today, we pray that you will bless this family as well and encourage them. God, bless them. And, and Lord, do for them what we can't do for them. Give them the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Tonight, Lord, we want to thank you for Brother Ken and his leadership in this church. We pray that you would give him wisdom and guidance and direction, meet his every need. We pray for all the staff here and all of the people in this church and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is working in this place. Thank you for every soul that's been saved. Thank you, Lord, for the vision that you've given this church and we pray, God, that you will move it forward for your honor and glory and meet its every need. Now bless us, Lord, as we leave this place tonight. May we be more determined to serve you and love you when we see what you've done for us on the cross. And Lord, we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Shake hands and fellowship with you. Come back Sunday. Teachers, officers, be here 920 for prayer. Let our visitors tonight know how glad we are to have them in the service.